Is it as good as the other shows? Maybe. I mean, it might be. You might like it as much as the other shows. But it's just a little old me. You don't have any big police officers here. It's just correctional officers. And we often get overlooked compared to the cops. But I remember being a correctional officer. And when I had this platform opportunity to make whatever I wanted, I thought, well, I'll do a correctional show. Jake's doing tons of overtime this week, but Abby stepped in and we did some interviews. Parts one and two are already on this platform. This is part three. Hope you enjoy. Hi, Abby. It's good to see you again. I mean, it's so good that we were able to get together on this third occasion, (laughs) totally discreet from the other two, to record this next installment. How are you today? I'm doing well. How are you? Doing great, as I was the last time we spoke, however long ago that was, some time ago. Good to see you again, old friend. You you too. I've spent way too much time thinking about prison. I think part of this is like, could I survive it, you know? Like, I, I didn't work in a women's prison, so I don't know what it's like there, but please don't go. Don't find I know. Out. Well, here, here's, but so here is what I think about. I think about like Kim Potter, you know? I mean, I'm not a cop, so, but like if, I don't know, if I got a, in a car accident and I was responsible for the death of another person, wouldn't I go to prison? Uh, yes. I mean, you would be charged with, I would guess, an involuntary manslaughter or something. Um, you got to remember that, you know, there's different levels and different kinds right. of prison. Right. And, and your, you know, your background circumstances are going to be look, looked into and, you know, you can throw yourself on the mercy of the court and you can be remanded to, you know, yeah, home detention. Minute. Well, not home detention <laughs> for killing someone, I don't think. Minimum security. But, but minimum security where, you know, you, you have a job and you're with like people. You know, there's a difference between involuntary manslaughter and some kind of intentional homicide. So, but you know, the 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 odds are that you're going to be looking at some some kind of nasty facility is is very high. Sometimes people wind up there. You know, first of all, while they're being processed, where they're coming in, they're coming in. At least where I am, you come into the main prison, and you're in it. You're in a maximum security cell block because we don't know anything about you. We haven't decided what your your adult inmate management system code is, which has to do with like your behavior type, you know, what's your, what's your personality type? Are you an aggressive person or are you just a meek person or you're a neutral person or are you a wild card or are you, your PREA code, you know, are you likely to be an aggressor or perpetrator of rape or there's so many other codes, but when you're brand new, we just, we treat you like the maximum threat and we try to get you assessed to get you to where you're supposed to be, but it can work different ways. I mean, one time we, we, we would house federal inmates temporarily at our facility. So they would be like, they would stop there for the night or until uh, we could get the jet out, which we called Con Air, to take them far away. We were a way station for federal inmates. Well, one night we get them all loaded up, like 40 of them, get them out of the facility and get them on the airplane. The airplane didn't take off. They didn't have enough duct tape on it or whatever. So we got to bring them all back in, which, by the way, bringing in inmates is a huge pain to the point where I was not only given overtime, but I was given inconvenience pay to return to work to help process a 40 incoming inmates. Wow. And we didn't have room for them. So we had this one guy and he was kind of just a meek guy. And I don't know anything about him because he's a federal inmate. I've never met him before. But he was cooperative, calm, kind of sad. And the only bed that we had for him was in one of our hard cells on a disciplinary unit. So he's in a cell by himself. So he's got the cell, which is kind of a mesh screen of metal, but then Lexon on the inside to prevent the inmate inside from spitting. And he has, has not been spitting on anyone. He doesn't deserve this. The, the floor is concrete. The bed's concrete. He doesn't even have a regular bed. I gave him a regular mattress, but, you know, it still doesn't really fit on that because in, in a hard cell, you know, they get like a suicide proof mattress where it's almost like just rigorous padding that's double sewn and it's in 
really thick fabric and it's not comfortable. So I gave him a regular mattress, which is really just still sponge foam. And I said to him, like, look, I don't know you. You've never done anything to me. You're not in trouble, but you are in the cell for our worst offenders tonight. And you are in a sec in a section where people are going to be yelling and screaming the entire night and flooding the cell. And the guy next to you is probably going to clog his toilet at 2 a.m. And there's probably going to be feces floating outside of this door at some point tonight. And I don't know you. Maybe you deserve that. But you, based on my interactions with you in the last 30 minutes, you don't deserve that. And I'm going to tell the person in the in the control pod that you are a regular person, you know, that you don't need to. He's, he doesn't even have to be locked down 23 hours a day. But he's in a cell that would designate that that would be the case. So it's like the last thing I want is like, you know, information to fall by the wayside. It's, and everyone's like cuffing him up with a leash. Mm. For him, the door can just be open and he can walk out. He's just staying there the night. He's just like in the worst Motel 6 of his life is really the situation <laughs> for him. And I said to him, and this was uncommon for me, but I was like, can I get you anything? Did you want two sack lunches? Because holy hell, this is awful. And you didn't deserve it. Like it's if you deserved it, I wouldn't be acting this way. But it's just like you're just trying to get to wherever you're going. This guy could have been a big mafia boss or he could have been the worst serial rapist of all time. But I didn't know him. I didn't know what he was in for. But he was he was in, in, in a cell and in a section which is so routinely covered in whatever's inside a person, urine, vomit, blood, poop. It just never smells good in there ever. There's huge industrial uh, vents in the ceiling that we use to pump out the pepper spray when we deploy it. It actually like the, the, the doors will suck shut from the huge fan going up. That's the room that he's in. And so if you go to prison, you may find yourself that is way <laughs> a, lot, a lot worse or a lot uglier than you ever thought, even if it's only temporary. I'm just saying these things can happen. And what was this section called? Six. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it was our maximum unit. Okay. So, and, and it's, so it's a square and it's divided into six sections. And in sections one and two, you had your mental health cases. These guys who are mentally respond, they were, they were culpable at the time of their crime. So they belong in prison, but their mental illness is so cute. They can't be in general population. We're talking about people with, you know, some kind of defect, developmental or otherwise, or guys that had hung themselves and had brain damage were guys in there. Oh my guys God. Acute, acute uh, personality <laughs> disorders, people, the kind of people that can't really function, have jobs, can't bathe themselves. We had one guy, I don't know how to explain this, but he was covered in, in poop all the time. We couldn't, we, we could take him out and clean him up, but his next time that he <sighs> needed to defecate, he rubbed it on himself. So that was his life. We couldn't respond in any way to that because it was all over his cell doors too. He didn't want us to see inside. So there was poop all over that and all over his body because he didn't want us to touch him. And he, his life was like that every single day. We would bring him out to shower. And sometimes he, many days he would refuse to shower, which they're allowed to do. So at wow. a certain, so what's the, what's the point? How do you get to a point where you force an inmate to shower? Where do you get to the point where you force an inmate to eat because these guys would go on hunger strikes too. The answer is that a judge decides that. A judge has to issue an order for us to do exceptional force to have someone either four or five pointed in straps, meaning their arms and their legs and sometimes their head are restrained. And this was in our orders. I never saw this in the many years I was there. But you, what we would do is we would uh, you would put in like a feeding tube and this would be done under a nurse, but they would take whatever was out of the kitchen that day. So ham, sandwich, potatoes au gratin, Kool-Aid. That would go in a blender and it would be blended up and it would go into their feeding tube. We never had to do that while I was there, but, but do you realize that there's extraordinary times where you have to 
do things to take care of an inmate against their will. And, and this guy that had feces all over him every day that I was there, at what point, how do you, you can't stop him. You can't stop him from, from doing that to himself. So that's, that's the mental illness wing. Mm -hmm. And then, so then you would have, and this has all changed since I left, but then you had three more sections where it's just the guys that are so active in gangs or there's such a danger or, you know, they said, if you let me out of here, I'm going to kill somebody. A lot of times these guys were just afraid of general population and that's why they would make such threats, but they usually could back it up. Ironically, they were afraid, but they also were very violent. And then you had this, this section six where it was the guys who were on disciplinary unit. And so those are the guys who have just recently committed a new crime inside prison. Sometimes major, sometimes a lot of minor write-ups were handled administratively. Like, you know, you're on loss of rec, you're on loss of commissary, you're on loss of birthday, won't be celebrated this year. But then, you know, you can also have serious crimes. Like an example of that would be, I had an officer who was actually, I was his field training officer. And he got off of field training and he actually got promoted to corporal pretty quick. This guy was in the National Guard. He was kind of, he was a pretty well squared away guy. Nice guy. I liked him and I get to know him, but he was doing rounds one night, you know, like we talk about with Jeffrey Epstein walking around in the section, telling the inmates to go in for the night because they'll, they'll just clutter around and you have to say, go to your cell, call the door open, close the door. And uh, I think to get juice for his gang purposes, this guy walks up behind him and cold cocks him. Like, uh, what do you call it where you just, you hit someone where you just, there was no provocation at all. He walks up and hits him. Um, hits him so sucker punch? Sucker punch. Thank you. Broke his jaw, left him unconscious on the floor. All the inmates are all around him. And this is, by the way, this is that section where all the gang members were at. So I think this was a demonstration of his power, or his clout, or his wanting to climb up in the ranks of the gang. He knocks this officer out, breaks his jaw. He's unconscious. He walks out of the section to kind of where the control room area is, gets down on his knees, puts his hands behind his back, and waits for officers to arrive. He does this so that we cannot use force to bring him into custody. He knows that when we see one of our brother officers down, and he's the guy that did it, either one, we're going to be justified in using force to secure him. Uh, any kind of resistance is obviously going to be met with force to essentially, it's arresting him just like we would on the outside. But he, he just didn't want us to have an excuse to hurt him. So he, he laid out this officer in an extreme way and just surrounded himself. You know, he went off to first the disciplinary unit, but then also because of that assault, his codes changed, like the codes by which we decide what his behavior is. So it went up a level, the custody level goes up. But then also he goes to administrative segregation for a while because he just gained all this juice in the gang. And he's mm -hmm. obviously a threat to staff if he will unprovoked walk up and sucker punch someone, as you said, and that officer's life, life was also destroyed. You know, he was left with mental anguish that our agency refused to address and help him with. He even reached out and said, I'm not doing okay. And they <laughs> said, they, they said, buck up. It's going to get better. And they took him off of duty from inside the walls. They kind of put him in the property area where we move property around and he never got better. And he asked for help and they're like, Oh, well, here's the employee assistance line and all this. And he ended up quitting and there's he went on the news about it and i i just felt so bad for him because in addition to his jaw being broken he was left with like some permanent mental anguish from that and we're talking about a guy in the national guard who i think he had gone to iraq and afghanistan maybe i'm not sure but this is a guy who found found more mental anguish at home at his job than he did fighting overseas right so that's sorry that was kind of an aside story but that's who you have in sections five and six on this maximum unit. you also have the death row guys the guys that are in there until we put them to death so first of all, going back a minute to what you said in terms of 
the noise, I realize noise is noise, but to have the guy next to you flooding his toilet so that feces are running down the hall. I mean, it, this sounds like an, a level of inhumanity that, you know, I understand these people are in prison for a reason, but they shouldn't be in conditions like this. I mean, this to me sounds... We don't, we don't allow it. We clean it up and we fix the toilet. Okay. <laughs> all right. I don't want you to think that's something going on all the time. The flooding of the toilet, that, that was caused by the inmate next to us. Yes, I understand. Okay. I understand. I'm just making sure that like you don't think that our plumbing's inferior or whatever. No, like, no, no. We, we, don't, we don't want to work in those conditions. An inmate wants attention and they're not getting what they want so that they're causing that problem. Okay. And okay. it's not fair to the guy next to him who wants to get out of disciplinary segregation, who just wants to do his, his three days and go back to where he was and start yeah. getting on a list for jobs again. Yeah. But he has to deal with this guy who's much less put together next to him. He can't sleep at night and whatever else. There's no yeah. solution to it. Surely we care about it. We don't want it to happen. But um, okay. the, the remedy is 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 usually in a matter of hours. We get people separated. We get people moved. But you don't get a good night's sleep. And unfortunately, when that guy gets moved or sent away, there's someone else to take his place. Every time we have an inmate who is especially problematic, like a pain to deal with, when they would flat their time, meaning their prison service is over, and they would leave. I would breathe a sigh of relief. But then like then I would meet somebody new who was exactly the same way. There's always one more who's exactly like him. So yeah. prison never really gets better because there's always one more guy out there that's like the guy that just left. So the solitary confinement, 23 hours a day. What's your opinion on that? That, that seems I understand that's maybe for their safety from Gen Pop and all that. But being in a cell 23 hours a day, wouldn't you, you lose your mind? So there's different kinds of that. The guys that are in and you know in their cells twenty three hours a day and they don't have their normal amenities those goes the guys are undisciplinary. Okay. So usually that would only go for a certain stretch, like there would be a maximum stretch. The problem is, is when they're indisciplinary, if they keep not complying, they keep catching additional charges. So it can it can keep going. So we always struggled with that. That was something where like we actually had to create incentives for them. So like while they're on maximum punishment we would subdivide that into steps, okay? So like, you know, if you are good for the next 12 hours, you go up the next step where you get this amenity where like we will bring you a blanket or whatever. And then if you're good for 12 more hours, you get this next amenity, which is like uh, you're off of sack lunches and you can have a regular lunch or whatever. So we had to create these achievable goals that were like so low in order to help them build a pattern of positive responsive behavior to get out of there. So the guys that are also on, on, on solitary confinement, if they're on administrative segregation, meaning they're the same, they're not in trouble. They're just, they can't be a general population. They've got a TV in there. They've got their clothes. They've got newspapers, magazines. They, they have uh, radios. They can listen to the radio. They could talk to the person next to them. That's sort of sounds ideal then. <laughs> uh, to be honest, be like like, having a... <laughs> if, if I was in prison, that's how I would want it to be. I would want to be on administrative, administrative segregation. First of all, I'm super introverted. But also, yeah. I really, I don't get along. I, I would not fit in with the criminal element. They would see me as someone to not get yeah. along with. I'm not them. And so being in the space or whatever would bother me because, you know, I, I particularly like being free. I would not do well in prison. Right, but compared, compared to whatever the situation is in, G, in general population, a lot of those guys prefer that. And okay. so a lot of those guys who are also in that situation where they're on 23-hour day lockdown, a lot of times they do have a cellmate. So they have somebody in there that they get along with. So oh. sometimes, sometimes what you call solitary confinement or being locked down 23 hours a day, sometimes they're not alone. Sometimes they got a buddy in there. Sometimes okay. they have they have a special friend. Uh, 
And well, you're laughing, and all I can say I'm is that there's, some, there's there's some people in there that enjoy the company of other inmates than others, and there was things we could do about that, and there were things we couldn't do about that. And sometimes those situations would be orchestrated to the point where an inmate would he would know who's who's down there on that unit and who was going to be there for a long time and who he can be with based on his codes and all the people that could be his cellmate, he would intentionally cause problems with so that he could not be housed with them anymore until he could be in the cell with the person he wanted to be with. And they would do this for weeks and weeks and weeks and months and months and months to get into the cell with either the person that's just their bud or the person that's their special friend. (laughs) <laughs> their special and this, <laughs> special friend and the, and this was like their life's mission was just to to exert whatever control they could over their existence you know and can you blame them because we're all trying to exert control over our existence but you know this is gross things sometimes or just things that help them survive so the, the it's a myth that you see solitary confinement like on Shawshank where you're thrown into the hole you right. know, where you're in a dark room and this big heavy door closes and you're in the dark all the time and you're left to think about what you did and it's cold and you know, a door, a tray slides under the door and it's got porridge on it that has a, a roach in it. That's not, that's not at all realistic. It's not a realistic deal, depiction of what solitary confinement is. And generally we don't want, if someone's on solitary, like if, as a matter of course, they're just dangerous to other people. And it's, their solitary confinement is about protecting others at that point. Okay. So you did mention death row. You said earlier that those folks are under 24 observation one-on-one is that that what you said leading up to their execution before that they're treated virtually the same as any other administrative segregation inmate so okay like if you know the typical death row inmate you know if they if they're coming in they've got 20 years of appeals it's right right. it's, it's legally indistinguishable for life in prison for most inmates but we had inmates who decided to end their appeals while I was there. Some of them, some of them made no appeals. They were extraordinary circumstances. Those were the the two inmates that were involved in the, the murder of that officer that I discussed yes. about on your show. Yeah. They did not exercise any appeals. They they wanted out of prison so bad they killed someone. They wanted out of prison so bad they were ready to die. <laughs> so they were ready to die in the escape attempt, and they were ready to be put to death. So they didn't mm-hmm. exercise any appeals. We had another inmate who had been there for twenty years and. He decided to stop his appeals, which is weird. I took him to court that day when he was t- telling the court that he wanted to cease his appeals. His lawyer didn't know what to do. He's like, what do I do with my hands? Like, if he <laughs> wants to stop his appeals and be put to death, but I think we should act in the interest of the inmate, which is not to do that. And, but, the, but, the, but, but my client says he wants to do this. And then, you know, the state's attorney's just like, I think we should just let him, you know, we should probably <laughs> just go ahead and do it. And the judge is just like, Everyone's on the same side. For 20 years, we've been fighting this battle. And now uh, the defense attorney just like is, in a, is a, he's in an ethical quandary, right? Because he has to do what's best for his client. And his client doesn't want what's in his own best interests in view of being alive. So that was interesting. But it, it isn't until that they're leading up right into their execution or if we have reason to believe that they may be in some sort of suicidal danger. But the reason for that is, is that we want to protect their lives because we're obligated to until we kill them, ironically. Uh, but we also... This is a, a political thing, and this is super cynical. But uh, this, the attorney general and the governor—they don't want the inmate stealing their thunder. Mm. They don't want to say that the inmate, you know, escaped justice at the last hour. They want to be I... able to say that that the state did the right thing. If you believe in criminal puni- in capital punishment, if you believe in that, if that's your context and your worldview, that that's right. That that we were able to meet out justice and that this inmate did not decide their fate for themselves. Because usually in this case, like obviously their victims didn't get to decide that. We want to. 
we don't want to afford the inmate an extra, you know, aside from all the extra years of life they've had, we don't want to afford them the agency to decide that when their lives are over. So we protect them for moral reasons because it's our duty, but also that cynical political reason, you know. So they don't kill themselves. They don't kill themselves so so that they don't pull the rug out from underneath uh, an attorney general who wants to run again or a governor wants to run again. So what is it like dealing with someone who's about to be put to death? I didn't sign up for that squad. That was a voluntary thing. Um, they don't put officers on that that don't want to be on that because if you have if you have if you're a conscientious objector to that, we're not going to put you in that situation. In the case of the uh, of the inmate who killed our our coworker, there was no shortage of officers who want to do that. I don't mean that in a mean way, but it's just like we do have our own SWAT team. Those guys are super. You know, they're squared away. They're good. They're our best officers. These there was never anyone on our SWAT team that I pretty much didn't look up to as an officer. They're very good guys. I saw these same officers who would interact with him daily. They were polite. They were courteous to him. He was very strangely polite and courteous to us. And it turned my stomach because he's joking around with us about the weather and we're joking around with him back. And I'm escorting him to the shower. I'm walking with him because you have to take three guys to move this guy anywhere now. And I'm looking, mm. at, I'm looking at the back of his head and thinking about what he did to my friend and how we're all just yucking it up. And it was, I didn't like that at all, but I, like, I'm a professional. So hopefully I didn't let it show my face probably did, but I, I was never on, on, on that squad. And the reason for that was, is because you know, I was dealing with some emotional fallout from my coworker being murdered. But at that time too, I was also not completely sure where I was on capital punishment. And I decided I had better not be complicit in that directly if I if I hadn't didn't have my moral certitude about it, I do now. But at that time, I was I was kind of confused, so I didn't want to put myself in a position of where I might have some kind of ultimate regret about that because they did put him to death. And like I said, there was enough candidates for that that they weren't hurting. You know, if if they if they were like we really need you know professional officers to step up and do this hard job, I would have considered it again. But there was no shortage of of professional trustworthy officers who were going to see to his safety until the end. <laughs> I can't imagine what that's like. It's not easy. And it's also confusing because it's like they still have dental appointments while they're on death row. Like we had to move a guy once who was, we were going to kill him at some point, meaning we're going to plunge a needle of chemicals into his veins to stop his heart. But we also had to like take the plaque off his teeth. So to do that, (laughs) we had to like shut down the entire facility to move a death row inmate because the idea is you're moving a death row inmate. Nothing's off limits for them. They will kill you because they have nothing to lose. There's nothing we can do to that guy. In fact, anything that he did do would prolong his life. Like if he killed me, that would mean he would face a new murder charge. That would mean he has 20 more years of appeals of his death sentence for killing me. So there's literally nothing we can do to the guy. So we have to lock down the entire facility. A whole cluster of officers goes around him. We've got all the leg irons on. He's going in to see what is a regular dentist inside the prison, a regular dental assistant who is super nice. And it just, to me, it stopped the entire day. It built in like three hours into the day in which we could not do anything. And I'm just like, why are we cleaning his teeth? I mean, like if he's got it, if his tooth's hurting him and we need to extract it, that's fine. If he's got like an acute problem, that's fine. Even if he's got kind of like some issue, that's fine. But it's like, we're literally cleaning them. Like, I just didn't understand that. And it's, it just shows you how much care they receive. So in light of our conversation that we just had about inmates being in poor conditions, about toilets being flooded and there being the smell of these bodily fluids in the section, just remember too, that we will take someone that we intend to kill and we will clean their teeth. That's, that's the care that we give. So we, we do, <laughs> there's both sides. Okay. I've always been fascinated by the idea of shivs and cell searches. So when I was filming at the jail, 
they were doing, it was uh, training for new officers and they did a whole class on cell searches. And it was a very methodical process. And, but I think cell searches fall under different categories. So there's, and, and you'll tell me, but there's a scheduled cell search or there's you just show up and it's like, okay, out and we're tossing your mm -hmm. cell because we think you've done something wrong. And so tell me, <laughs> and, and part B of that was how much, uh, you know, I, I don't think they're looking just for shivs or looking for contraband, but they did a whole thing on, on how to, how you can make a shiv. And there was a lot of reference to toilet paper. So <laughs> oh boy. Um, making shivs out of toilet paper. So where do you want to start? Well, again, this varies by facility, but for us, you would come onto a shift, which is in, in a, an eight hour shift. And, um, your post orders indicated that on your shift, you should be conducting two random shakedowns or mm. a search of a cell. And this would uh, rotate through every month. So you need to be getting every single cell per, in a month. Of course, we would, we would, we would usually do too excessive that. So it's like if we had just done cell D16 and that was two days ago, we saw in the list it was done, you know, two days ago. I'm like, let's hit them again because they, they, they just got shook down. You know, who knows what they've got going on. It's they, they feel like they might have a, a good bout or a good interval between their next shakedown. Um, if an inmate was giving us any signs or indications, a really good or proactive officer would say, you know what, I'm going to go get this guy today because he's he's acted in a certain way. Or um, sometimes this sounds juvenile, but just to remind him that he's not in charge of the unit, that correctional officers have the discretion to search their cells. I need to remind you that these guys are not private citizens, okay? This isn't the same thing as a police officer pulling you over and saying, let me look in your trunk. These guys are already tried and by the system and they're convicted, okay? So their rights to privacy are not the same as yours. A police officer would not treat you this way. But a correctional officer can look at someone and say, based on their behavior, I'm going to do this. Or they could say, based on nothing at all, I'm going to go do this because the Fourth Amendment doesn't apply in there, and nor should it. And you have to have that because these guys have to be constantly kept off balance. If they know when to expect shakedowns, they're just going to move contraband around. So you would have it where you would need to do that twice a shift. Somebody's getting shaken down every day. So it's a routine process. Um, it needs to, Everyone needs to get done in a certain amount of time, You know, usually a month or less. But also incident to the gathering of intelligence by special security, which is kind of like our detectives, if they had any reason to believe there was increased gang activity or if they if they read through somebody's mail or listened to a phone call and they were hearing things that maybe indicated some violence was coming or if they got indications or they had someone inform them that someone had a, had a weapon, we would do what we called a massive shakedown where we would do the whole unit. Sometimes we would do that in order to go after the specific people that we wanted to go after without revealing that we knew anything. Okay. So inmate X, Y, and Z, they're, they're involved in gang activity and they're the ones we, we really want to know. We want to know what the hell they're doing, but we don't want to tip their hand that we have any idea that they're in a gang or that they're, they're, they're planning something. So we're going to hit everybody. We're going to get everybody out of there. We're going to search the entire unit. We're going to bring in a dog that can smell cell phones, a dog that can smell tobacco just because they're not allowed to have that. And we're going to bring in, we're going to bring in the academy class, these brand new officers. We're going to teach them how to do shakedowns by bringing down all 25 of them, in addition to uh, the staff that are already there. And then uh, we also usually would have, I think it was one day per month, but uh, we would have a, a one day per month where we would have basically an all staff meeting day where 
we would have a, a routine day. And then at the midday count, we were just locked down the rest of the day. And the inmates knew this was coming. And so what would happen is we would all have our, we would have our meeting in which, you know, the upper staff assure us that everything's going well. And then when, when that was done, every single correctional officer that's on duty goes to where this shakedown is going to be. And it would be somewhere different every month. So, yeah, you would leave one or two officers down to do just the only thing that's going to go on in those units is rounds while the whole prison's locked down. Every inmate's in their cell. We would go to wherever it is we're going. And so you would have a huge number of correctional officers come in and we would search and we'd pull out. We would take away all their bedding. We would issue them new bedding, sometimes mattresses. We would take away their old mattresses because they would conceal things in their mattresses. We would run that through metal detectors. We would pull, take those off the units. We would issue them all new stuff. Sometimes clothes, too. We would take all the clothes away because they would sew things into the seams, the hems of their clothes. We'd pull all that out. You said something about toilet paper. I have seen weapons made out of toilet paper, which is a process of dampening the toilet paper, shaping it, hardening right. it. Right. My goodness, what, a, what an artisan craftsman who can make a weapon out of out of that. I mean, I've, I've seen prison armor where someone basically takes newspapers and magazines and builds a, a stab proof vest for themselves because it's on like Donkey Kong and they don't want to get stabbed. <laughs> Something that was more, more common for us was, so these guys have radios, particularly in the administrative segregation unit. Well, I mean, a lot of guys would have radios, but it's essentially a Walkman with a headset. They get batteries for this. So if you take an, an Energizer or a Duracell, you can peel off that layer and what you can do is you can actually rub that against something that's very fine grit and you can fold it over like seven, eight times until this is a very narrow piece of metal and it's very sharp. And that is the same as a razor blade. So you can cut your wrist with that. You can cut your neighbor with that. So that's that's one way they would make weapons. Um, shivs out of toothbrushes, pencils. We actually had these weird rubbery pencils. I'm not sure what they were made out of. I wish I could get you one of these. But you hold the pencil in your hand and you, you like you're going to bend it like you're going to break it and it just curls. Like it's a soft pencil and it, huh. those, that thing was really cool, um, <laughs> you know, so that they can still write things, but not stab each other. Um, <laughs> sometimes they would get a hold of pens and I, like a friend of mine, he got stabbed with, I think a real pencil. And to this day, he still has some of that pencil inside of him because it was just too much of a pain to get it out. But probably our most, the most dangerous weapons aside from like being hit with a fire extinguisher or some other weapon of opportunity is what's called a stinger. So you have some sort of electrical appliance in your room, your television or whatever, and you cut off the cable, okay? And you plug that in, and now you've got two wires that are coming out that's the same as, <laughs> and it's an electrical weapon. Somebody comes in, you know, you're on a cell entry because obviously, you know, if they've got that, then you're going in there to get them. They're not cuffing up. Um and they can use that. They can use the two wires in there to complete the circuit through your body and shock you badly. But the worst instance I ever saw of a stinger being sort of innovatively applied was they took a stinger. So it's a cutoff cable from a television or other. I think the television is the only thing that they had that had that. But they took a vessel or a container of some kind. And I'm wondering if maybe it was a bowl for their commissary or something. They filled it up with water and they put the end of the cable in this and they were able to boil water with it. And they threw it into an officer's face. Oh. Gave him severe burns on his face. Oh my God. They severely burned my friend. And so that oh. was, you know, that was one way in which they innovated to do that. So. What I was explained is they have lots of time mm -hmm. and very creative ways of. Yeah. 
well, creating. That guy was mad at this officer. It was a very specific thing. They they were having, you know, problems mm. uh, because this officer was, he was probably the most squared away officer. Like every time I've just mentioned to you in these last interviews about the squared away guy, I'm thinking of this one guy. He was, he was actually, he was on the SWAT team. He was on our honor guard. He had been a sergeant at one point before me, but then he realized that he was too smart for that. So he went down to being officer again. And he was just really tough. And really fair, but he didn't take shit from anybody. And the inmates, the inmates that he worked with, he worked on the hardest unit voluntarily. He chose to work down there. They did not like him for this reason because he was a good officer. And sure enough, at one point, you know, the, this one inmate had gone to great lengths to not only destroy his television, he couldn't watch TV the whole time that he's waiting to set up this trap for him. But yeah, he boils the off the water because he knows on morning rounds the the we're going to come through and we do searches every morning on this unit because it was the most dangerous unit. We literally went in there every day. Uh, in the morning, it was part of the morning routine, and that's when he got him. He threw the uh, boiling water in his face, and he was <laughs> severely burned. So, I mean, it must have been a, just at a rolling boil when it went at him. Was the officer able to recover from that? He did. I believe he took some time off because you know, coming in every single day to the to where you work and you have blisters all over your face. And you, this is not a pun, but like when you have to save face at work, you know, on the one hand, you want to show up and show that you don't care what these inmates do to you. You're not going to stop. On the, on the other, you don't want to give them the satisfaction of them seeing how they wounded you every day. So it's like I I would I should talk to that guy again if I see ever see him again and ask him kind of what he thought about that. But well, he'd be open to infection, too, with that kind of a wound. Well, we were all open to infection all the time. Actually, I used to get sick very, very often at the prison. Um, mm. And we would have inmates who had orderlies. Their sole job was to walk around with bleach and rags and bleach doorknobs and handles. Oh. But I started carrying uh, hand sanitizer in my duty belt. And as soon as I did that, like it got better, obviously. But it's like we all share keys, right? And we're all uh. in, the, in there with the prison. I can't imagine what COVID was like. I hear stories about prison and COVID. So infection was a thing, but mostly just saving face. And different officers were different about that. Um, like in that episode I gave you before where we had the, the officer murdered and the two inmates attempted escape. The first officer to confront them uh, got into a fight with them. So it was two inmates and one officer. He was very badly beaten. Right. Um, he went to, he after they were arrested, he he left to go get checked out and he came back to work. He finished, oh. he finished the shift because we went on lockdown. So none of us had an, our shifts weren't over at any specific time because we were in an emergency. So it's like you're here for the duration, however long that is. He came back to work. He, his face was purple and bruised and he had cuts all over his face. But one of our officers had already been murdered that day. And right. he said, I'm not going to show these guys that they can do anything to me to get rid of me. I'm coming back to work. So even though his friend was murdered that day, he was brutally assaulted that day. He came back and finished the shift with us and he's just a hell of a guy. He's a Marine. So like nothing's going to stop him, but I always looked up to him for that. And, uh, uh he, he did uh, receive some significant recognition on a national level for, for his bravery that day. But just, just shows you, you know, like if we get assaulted or injured, you know, I was lucky. I never had anything like that happen to me, although I was not well liked by inmates. Uh, just, just shows you how, how we come back from that. But, uh, there's just trying to confine myself to, to answer you just weapons of all different kinds all the time. It would surprise you how they could innovate to find new and different ways of hurting each other. I'm surprised I'm remembering this stuff, to be honest, obviously I remember all this stuff, but I haven't thought about it in years and years and years. So it's kind of cathartic to maybe get it out of my system again. Yeah. Well, you know, thanks 
for sharing that story about that officer and it demonstrates the commitment. You know, I hear you say on hard time, the corrections officers, correctional officers aren't considered law enforcement. And, you know, I think the more people know about what you guys do, the more we can appreciate you. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. I still appreciate correctional officers out there now who are suffering now more than ever. Like, look at the state of things since 2020, right? Police departments are suffering since COVID. Prisons are suffering more more than ever now. Like my own agency, the stuff that I hear about what's going on there now is actually way, way, way worse than what I had to put up with. Somehow they found a, a new way to do, to make prison more awful. And mm. uh, so uh, correctional officers out there are dealing with stuff that, uh, you know, they just can't come home every day and tell these stories, you know, yeah. whether it's uh, violence or sex or just poop. Like this is... <laughs> It, it sounds funny, but it's just like, this is daily stuff. And how do you come home and tell your loved ones about it? Like, how was your day, honey? I'm like, well, uh, don't hug me. Cause I've, I've, you know, I've got, I've smell like poop first of all, and there's probably blood in my boots. So I'm going to leave those outside and hose those off. Like I've, I've had to change uniforms at work before. And this is a, fu- I'll leave you on a funny story. Okay. So, okay. so I'm sounds covered good. in blood <laughs> because uh, some act of self-harm and I've got to get involved with the guy. No, you didn't self-harm. No, not me. Mm-hmm. Okay. Oh, some, some act of self-harm on behalf of, a, of an inmate. Okay. I had to, had to intervene, but I've got blood all over me. My uniform's ruined. So I've got to go up to where we keep all of our old uniforms and they're actually kind of out of date. They look like seventies uniforms. They're uh, the same. There's functionally, I mean, they're the same uniform, but you can tell they're older. Like the, the patches are like, you could tell that just, they were handmade or something anyway. So I'm six, five. And they don't have pants long enough for me. So I have to get these pants that like they're, and I was a big boy at that time. I've lost some weight. Yeah. you. I heard you say that. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so they looked like capris on me. <laughs> they come down to like the mid calf and I've got, I've got ankle, I've got like 10 inch boots on. So I'm an absolute like fashion travesty. So I, so I say to the shift commander, like, can you please put me in the, the car that just is outside during wreck outside the fence? There's a yeah. car out there with a guy in it with a gun. And I'm like, can you please put me out there? If I have to walk around the wreck yard with women's capris on the rest <laughs> of the shift, I, I, it's going to do just terrible damage to the morale of all officers, my morale in particular. I'm going to get made fun of by these inmates. Yeah. Um, it was something else similar to the when we first started wearing ballistic vests. We had like one for some reason. That was, that's what we were going to do, buy one ballistic vest. And so, again, I'm a big guy. So we had put on this extra small ballistic vest that we clearly got a discount. It fits me like a woman's brassiere. And I have to wear it outside <laughs> of my uniform. And the inmates are making fun of me. And I'm like, my oh. God, can we please get some good equipment? Can we please have some longer pants? Can we please have like... Oh. How about a ballistics vest that like covers my whole, you know, center mass and not just my pectoral muscles? That would be super (laughs) cool because you're going to shoot me like just above the navel now and I'm going to (laughs) die because we don't have this in here. So, so yeah, we had some fashion disasters while we were in prison too. It was funny. We had funny stories too. We we have stuff to this day that we'll laugh about. Actually, um, for a hard time, I want to bring on uh, my field training officer because he and I had some good stories. So could be some good funny stories coming up in case it does get a little too heavy. 
Yeah, I know. Sorry for the seriousness, folks. No, but, it's okay. Uh, I, I think people, you, you, they need to know how serious it is. There's a whole part of life that's closed off from society because cameras don't go inside the wall. People don't care about what happens in prison ultimately. And there's so much controversy with police officers and police officers being the badasses that they are. They get a little more glory. I've jumped over a railing before. I've done cool things, but there's no body cam footage to prove it. So <laughs> that's, the, that's the society we live in. All right. Well, I hope we'll continue these conversations. Sure, absolutely. Thanks. Thanks for uh, chatting Thanks. with me. All right. Okay. Thank you. You bet. All right, guys, that closes out part three. What a riveting episode. I could barely remember what was in it, possibly because I don't know how Abby edited it and I prepared this beforehand. Anyway, thank you guys for listening to Failure Stop Hard Time on Patreon. We do try to speak out for the correctional officers out there that get overlooked. You guys are important. You enforce the rules. You enforce the law. You go through a whole lot of shit that no one can understand. You're a first responder in every sense. You're doing firefighter training, wearing SCBA masks. You're performing first aid. You're doing emergency medical responses. You do it all. You're basically all the other first responders all rolled into one, and everyone thinks you work for Game Fish and Parks when you when you leave the facility to go home and someone runs into you. I feel for you guys. I know it's a dangerous job. I know that you've been through some stuff that other people can't understand. And uh, we're here to talk about that and uh, also hopefully make you laugh. 